It was Nathaniel's seventh birthday on Wednesday. Nathaniel was the one who called out that it was his coat that I was using. Um, Now, I am absolutely awful at remembering when birthdays are. I don't mean it's a slight problem for me. I mean, it's it's sort of a real situation. So, I um, got Nathaniel's birthday wrong. And um, we had an event on at church on the Saturday night, and I sent my apologies and said, I'm really sorry, I won't be there, but it's Nathaniel's birthday. The only problem was, Nathaniel's birthday was on the Wednesday. So I'm then backtracking, making all these apologies for my sort of lack of memory. So what Claire very kindly does now, she's decided that all birthdays need to go in my diary, and they come up on my phone bleeping the day before, so I actually get them right. And it's, you know, but it is quite a problem. It's quite a problem for me. Well, today's Pentecost. And in some ways, it's a bit like it's the birthday of the church. And we're remembering the time that God sent his spirit. You know, like on our own birthdays, we're remembering when we were born. But we can't actually remember it. But we remember the time span between when we've been born and now. Pentecost, in a sense, is a bit like a birthday in that same sense. Because what happens at Pentecost, the spirit is poured, but it is then continually poured onto the church. So we're not just remembering today but we're participating in that event which happened 2,000 years ago. So if you've got a Bible with you, or if you're using a church Bible, we're in Acts chapter 2, we're on page 1032. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 21, and then just skip a bit later and read from 38 down to 41. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? How, then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own songs. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. 
The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then to verse 38. This is after Peter has spoken. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 added to their number. Just let's spend just a moment, just in stillness, before we start to unpack what that is about. Lord, just in the quiet now, would you be opening our hearts to receive from you. Lord, for many of us, this is a well-known passage of Scripture. But I want to pray that in a new way, you will excite us and challenge us about what your Spirit will do if we become available for him to use. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit. Come and open our hearts to you. Amen. Just over seven weeks have passed since the days of the crucifixion and the Easter account till you get into Acts chapter 1 and then into Acts chapter 2. And sometimes I read this passage and I think, oh, this is far removed from the events of Easter. But I think we've got to get our heads around the fact that this is really close in. There's only a few weeks dividing all these events. So if you can cast your mind back, think of Palm Sunday. Literally just a few weeks ago, wasn't it? And you're celebrating um, that journey of Jesus into Jerusalem on the donkey with people shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All that excitement. The disciples were thinking, you know, this is it. Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom. By the end of the week, their hopes are shattered. Jesus is crucified on the cross. There's that terrible events of Good Friday evening and Easter Saturday, you know, that time of utter desolation, when for the disciples, everything had fallen apart. Then you get that terrifying hope of resurrection, that Jesus rises from the dead. First of all, the women see Jesus at the tomb, they encounter him. And then you get those other encounters of the risen Jesus. You find um, that Jesus meets with the two on the road to Emmaus. He meets with all the disciples in the, the room locked upstairs. He then meets with them on the beach. And then finally, in Acts chapter 1, he meets with them before he ascends into heaven. And just before Jesus ascends, there is this promise given. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. Do not go anywhere until the Holy Spirit has come. Don't start on this great commission I've given you until the power to do so has been received. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we've got to get our head around this morning as we come and look at Pentecost. 
that the events from Easter right the way through to the Pentecost um, occasion is about the length of the summer holidays. How would you feel if you'd been through a period of time that all that lot had gone on? Like that? I think I would be a little sort of overawed by what had happened. You know, I'd seen the one I thought was the Messiah hanging on the cross. I'd seen him risen. And now I've been told to wait. Been told to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. There's this instruction. There's a couple of things, um, really, I just want to say about the Spirit before we um, move on to actually look at that passage. I think these are really important things because I realize that when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, there can be many different interpretations. It can be quite controversial. But I think if we actually stick to what the scripture says, it's actually relatively straightforward what the Spirit actually is to do in our lives and what we can expect. The first thing I want to say really is about the Spirit is that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 13, when you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So if today, if you are following Jesus, if you've believed in him, if you've given your life over to him, the Spirit has entered you. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That, that idea of a seal, I don't know if you've seen like old-fashioned letters that have the wax seal on them. So you can't open them because they're sealed up and the, the seal would have somebody's name on it. That is what the Holy Spirit has done to us to say, we belong to Christ. We are his. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. It says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See, Paul saying the same thing there. We are sealed by God's Spirit when we first accept Jesus into our hearts. Now, I find that really comforting. And I find it comforting because that roots my Christian life in the truth of Scripture, not in an experience. So it roots the fact that I am in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in me, not on some outward experience, but on an inward reality rooted in the truth of God's Word. I think that is really exciting. I think that is really exciting. But the second thing, That conversion experience, when the Spirit comes into us, is not the Spirit's full stop in our lives. It's not the end of a sentence, and that is it for the Spirit's ministry. But rather, it's the start of what the Spirit is going to do within us. That transforming, equipping, gifting power of the Spirit. It says in Ephesians 5, verse 18, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And that word filled there in that context has an idea of being continually filled. Have the fullness of God's Spirit within you. So when we pray, come Holy Spirit, we are praying for that continual infilling of God's Spirit. Let's get back to the disciples. Disciples, chapter 1 in Acts. Now, before Jesus ascended into heaven, there'd be a couple of questions I'd want to have asked him, but the disciples probably got cut off because Jesus then ascends and that sort of puts any questioning on hold. Two things. How will we know that it's the Holy Spirit? How will we know when the Holy Spirit has come? I think that would be a question that would be really on my sort of heart. How do we know that that promise has been fulfilled? And then secondly, how will it change things? What will there be effects that the Holy Spirit has equipped and empowered us? Luke chapter 2 is, in a sense, the outworking of those questions. And there are things here that I believe give us markers of what we can anticipate the Holy Spirit will do in the life of the church today. What are the markers of an Acts chapter 2 church? What are the markers of a group of people, a community of people, filled by the Spirit? Now, you'll realise I haven't read to the end of the chapter. 
And the last little bit of chapter 2 is absolutely fantastic. So you've got a job to do this afternoon. You need to go home and you need to look at that bit and you need to work out actually what other things, in addition to what I'm saying this morning, are marks of an Acts 2 church. So you can do a bit of homework later. That's a great thing because that passage is absolutely brilliant. But let's actually get to look at this account. Day 1, um, day of Pentecost, sorry, in verse 1. 50 days after Passover, it's a harvest festival. People would have been in Jerusalem, full of joy, really enthusiastic in praising and whatever. And the believers are together. The believers of Jesus are meeting together. We don't really know much about where they are. It talks about them being in a house, but they also seem to be near somewhere where there's crowds of people, because otherwise, where do these 3,000 believers come from? So it seems to be in a busy place. And they're waiting. They're prayerful. And they're available to God. I think that's something really important here. These first believers are available to God. They're trusting on God's promises. Now, we know what's coming, don't we? Because we've just read it. They didn't know what was coming. They just knew they had to sit and wait. They could sit and be prayerful, but they had no idea of what was going to happen. You know, sometimes in our lives, if we're, if we're risky enough to put ourselves available for God, if we say, Holy Spirit, come into our lives, fill me, I'm available to be used by you, that can sometimes mean that God will lead us to do things that are quite unexpected. It's a very dangerous prayer to make yourself available to God. There's um, a book written by a bloke called Keith Warrington, and it's a really good book on the Holy Spirit. He says it like this. He says, It may prove to be a destabilizing moment when he, that is the Holy Spirit, visits us afresh. But he goes on, However, he is trustworthy because he is God. He is trustworthy because he is God. Have we got any fans of the Narnia books here? Yeah. A few people with their hands up. I don't know if you ever remember reading the bit where Aslan um, comes in. I can't remember which book it's in, actually. But he comes into the the scene, and and somebody says, is Aslan, he's the one who's like the the sort of Jesus-type character in the Narnia books. And somebody says, well, is he safe? And the reply is given, no, he's not safe, but he's good. I think that's what we need to say about the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit safe? Will he always keep us in our nice little boxed-in lives? No. But he's God, and he's trustworthy, and he will lead us into God's will. So Luke tells us what happens. There was a sound like wind from heaven filling the house, and what seemed to be tongues of fire come onto people's heads. We notice what Luke says. It's what seemed to be like this, and it was like this. He's really keen to stress, you know, this is God working, This is not just somebody's accidentally left two windows open and a a breeze blows through the house. It's not somebody's accidentally let a a lamp tip over and set something on fire. This is God at work. And the more I've been thinking about this this week, the more I've thought, you know, God is incredibly gracious to us in the way he deals with his people. Because what we find here in Acts chapter 2, in the way that the Spirit comes, is totally in line with the Old Testament. Now, these people who were meeting, they were Jews. They would have understood the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the breath of God and the fire of God are seen as very much symbols of God's presence. There's a word in the Old Testament, the word ruach, which means the breath of God. And perhaps the most striking example of it is in Ezekiel 37, where God breathes, and this valley of dry bones, and all the dry bones come back to life, and God breathes his life into them. 
There's then examples of the fire of God. Um, in the story of the Exodus, the fire of God leads God's people physically through the night, through the wilderness. And God uses those same type of things at Pentecost to say, this is my spirit. I am consistent. I am doing what I've always done. I am who I always am. I'm the same today, yesterday, and forever. You know, when God moves by his spirit in our lives, he will move in line with scripture. He will always move in line with how he said he will work. You know, it's easy, isn't it, I think, as we're reading this story, to get really obsessed with this phenomena and to think, wow, you know, this, this is amazing stuff. This is like something from the movies, you know, special effects sort of stuff. But actually, Luke doesn't want us to linger here too long. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit, given at Pentecost, is available for the church today. I believe that in all its fullness, that the Holy Spirit is the same Spirit. It's not being taken away from the church, but it's being given in its fullness. And I think that we have to be open to the Spirit's ministry. But we don't always expect the Spirit to work in this kind of way. This is not a blueprint for our day-to-day expectation. Sometimes the Spirit moves very gently. Sometimes when we pray for the Spirit to move, he helps us transform in our lives. I heard a couple of years ago, um, this bloke called Simon Ponsonby, I don't know if anyone's ever heard him, um, it was at a Baptist Leaders Conference, and he was talking about the sort of the drama of the ministry in Acts. And he said this, he said, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing him, so it's not an exact quote of what he said, but it's more or less what he said. He said, some parts of the church have been really keen about preaching about signs and wonders, saying this is what we need in today's church. And they've done it for years after year after year. But actually, we've not seen a great deal of signs and wonders. And we've not seen that many people saved. You know, we're not in a revival time in the church in the UK. And he went on to say, actually what we see in the book of Acts is people preach Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And sometimes God in his sovereignty brought signs and wonders to accompany the preaching of the gospel. And he went on to say that actually in the Wesleyan revivals, the Great Awakening, you see the same type of things happening. Sometimes, when the gospel is preached in power, God will accompany that with moves of the Holy Spirit. Now, God is God. We are not. God will move out of his sovereignty. If God chooses to accompany the preaching of the gospel with signs and wonders, you know, I'm happy to leave that in God's hands. God's hands, thankfully, are much bigger and safer than my hands or your hands are. And also, um, that means that I don't have to try and engineer drama in church. I don't have to try and manipulate to try and get some of this stuff happening. God is God. He will do what he will do. But he calls us to be available. Our commission is to go and make disciples. What's the test of any ministry? It's not the drama that's in the ministry, but it's the fruit that's at the end of it. Have people been changed? Have people who were not um, in relationship with Jesus found that saving faith in Jesus? Have people's lives been transformed? So what would it look like? That was the question I asked. It looks like this. And this is what Acts 2 tells us. Second question I was going to ask was, what will the result of this be? What will happen when the Spirit comes? So the first thing we see is that in Acts 2 church prays us joyfully. It quickly points everything back to Jesus. Verse 4, people speak in tongues. Here it's unlearned um, human languages. And Luke gives us that long list of very difficult to pronounce places. 
um, all across the known world. And there are Jews, there are converts to Judaism. And what do we find they're doing? Well, we find out in verse, 12, in verse 11. They are speaking about the wonders of God. They are proclaiming God's greatness. I don't know if you know the, the story of the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11. There's this brilliant account of um, people building this big tower and the people of the world are coming together and they build this huge tower and they think they're sort of challenging God and they think they've made it. And this really great image of God having to come down to take a look at this puny little tower and say, oh, that's what you're doing, is it? And then what God does is he says it's not good for for human beings to be getting so powerful and self-assured. So the languages of humans are then split up and sort of drifted around the world, and we can no longer understand one another. What happens at Pentecost is almost a reversal of that. When the Spirit comes, there is now unity. When the Spirit comes, the church is now an international community of Spirit-filled believers. We were at a wedding um, three weeks ago, and it was a friend of ours who was from Zimbabwe getting married, and at the wedding reception, we we got put on a table with three other um, I suppose there was a minister, a vicar, and another minister, and then us. So there were like four of us, four ministry couples sat there. Now, I'm of the opinion of things like that. The ministers are a bit like manure. You know, they better spread around rather than sort of clumps in one place. But anyway, we were all in this one place. And I got sat next to this bloke. He'd been a minister in Zimbabwe. Now, he had ministered in a totally different setting to where I'd ever encountered. His challenges were not my challenges. Some of the stuff he was saying, I was finding quite difficult to just relate to culturally. But you know what? The more we talked, the more we found we were exactly on the same page when it came to our faith in Jesus. We were part of this international community, united by the Spirit of God. Here at Pentecost, these people, united by the Spirit of God, start praising God, start declaring the wonders of God. When people start praising Other people have an interesting reaction. Some people are amazed. Some people think, wow, what is going on here? They may be perplexed, but they're amazed. Others, verse 13, think they're drunk. We used to live in Hazelgrove in Stockport, and we used to live quite near the main A6. Many people driven down the A6 through Hazelgrove. Yeah, just put your hands up. So, yeah, you've experienced that delight (coughs) of that beauty and tranquility that the A6 is. If you drive through the A6 in Hazelgrove in an evening, almost any evening, you will encounter drunk people. Because Hazelgrove is full of pubs, an infinite number of kebab shops. If you're into kebabs, Hazelgrove's the place to go. Um, Restaurants of varying qualities and a couple of quite seedy nightclubs. And so in an evening, you get drunk people wandering around. Now, if I encounter somebody who's really drunk, they don't normally start speaking to me in eloquent Latin. They don't normally start to speak in ancient Greek or um, Arabic that they've not learnt. In fact, the reverse often happens. You know, drunk people struggle to speak in any language whatsoever. (laughs) So why did people think that they were drunk? Is it just an off-the-cuff remark, oh, they're drunk? I actually wonder if there's a little bit more to this. Jewish worship of the day was very solemn. It would have been very liturgical, very serious. Suddenly, you get this group of people filled by the Spirit praising God noisily, enthusiastically in all these different languages. And people are thinking, well, that enthusiasm only happens when people have had too much wine. But actually, there is a better explanation. This kind of praise happens when the Spirit of God awakens people's hearts. 
And we find the same thing happening as the book of Acts goes on. Chapter 4, verse 31. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Not in tongues that time, but in the natural human language. But they spoke the word of God boldly. Do you desire to praise God this morning? Is there that real desire deep within you to praise, to worship, to honour God, not just with our voices, but through the way that we live, through everything that we are? There's a great book that um, I've read a number of times on worship by an author called Tozer. Um, he died in the mid-60s, so it's quite an old book now. Um, and he, he writes this about his sort of singing praise to God. I love this. He says, I would rather worship God than do any things I know of in all the world. He goes on, I cannot sing a note. If you want to find out if that's true for you, just turn to people around you and ask them. I'm sure they'll give you an honest appraisal. <laughs> but he says, but that is nobody's business. He said, God thinks I'm an opera star. God listens while I sing to him the old French hymns, old Greek hymns of the Eastern Church, the beautiful psalms on Emeter and the songs of Watts and Wesley. Now, what we use to praise God is, is not really the relevant point here. But it's the heart with which we come to praise. You know, are you reaching out and saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit so that my life is real in praise to you? So that I'm really engaging in that worship of you through everything I do. Did anyone watch the, the general election debate? Yeah. I think after last night, I sort of feel a little bit like I know what they went through. <laughs> but you get all these politicians, and they're, they're being quizzed, and they're being questioned. And people actually want real answers from politicians, don't they? And you could see the audiences getting slightly um, disconcerted when the answers were fake or the answers were fudged. I think there's a lot of desire in our world for real authenticity. When we praise in an authentic way, I think people notice. When our lives are lived out as worship to Jesus, people do notice. Are you praying that prayer, Spirit, fill me, so that my life may be one of praise? Second thing we see here is that an Acts 2 church is a church that shares the gospel. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Now we're used to that reading, it doesn't suddenly hit us, but just think for a minute. This is Peter. This is Peter who just a few weeks earlier was sat by a fire in a courtyard denying Jesus to a servant girl. This is, Jesus, this is Peter who continually put his foot in it, said the wrong thing, um, made a mess of all kinds of things, but now he's about to stand up and give the first great sermon of the church. Yeah, there is hope for us when the Spirit moves in our lives. He can use our weaknesses and use that for God's purposes. Peter is about to preach, and it reveals something else incredibly important. When the Spirit, when we become available to the Spirit, we can find that we will do, be able to do stuff that naturally we aren't able to do. That in our natural selves, we are not able to do. You know, Peter hadn't gone to some theological college for those ten days before the Spirit came. He hadn't done a crash course in oratory. This was the Spirit's enabling. The Spirit can enable us to do things for the kingdom of God that we can't naturally do. Will we pray, you know, Holy Spirit, guide us, lead us, empower us, to share the gospel. That empowerment for sharing the gospel, the gifts of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit brings, they're not sort of playthings for the church to mess about with, but they are for the purpose of building the church up so that we can share Jesus with the world around us. 
An Acts 2 church is a church that quickly points to Jesus. So what does Peter do? Well, he takes the word of the prophet Joel and he says, this is what's happening. God's promises are being fulfilled in your midst. These are the promises of God for the last days. These last days are now here. The Spirit is poured out, and until Jesus returns, the Spirit is going to keep being poured out. Could have been easy for Peter, though, couldn't it, to think, hold on a minute. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. He's no longer on the scene. I've just suddenly been given and equipped with this great gift of preaching. Perhaps I could start to draw people to myself rather than point them to Jesus. Perhaps I could become a figurehead of a new movement. Perhaps I could be the one who now challenges the Romans and tries to kick them out. There is absolutely nothing of that in Peter here. Peter will solely point to his Lord. He points everybody to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. You know, are we available this morning for the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can glorify Jesus? So that we can point other people to Jesus Christ? As a church, are you desiring the Holy Spirit to be so evident in your midst that the people in Lim and the surrounding places notice? They realize that here is a spirit-filled community. Here are people empowered by the Spirit of God to share Jesus. And the third thing is an Acts 2 church is a church that is expectant for growth. For the last few months, we've been getting a load of PPI calls You know those automated calls that come through on your phone? And they normally happen at the same time every day. One at lunchtime, one at evening meal sort of time. And I normally just pick up the phone, wait for the automated voice and put it down again. But I've got so used to those happening, it takes me by surprise when I get a real phone call. And um, actually, it was on Nathaniel's birthday, the day that I forgot. Um, The phone rang. It was at mealtime, so I pick up the phone. There was a bit of crackling at the other end. And I was expectant that it would be a call centre or an automated voice. And suddenly this little voice in an American accent goes, Jonathan? That was an awful American accent. But he says something like that. And it's Claire's um, nephew. It's our nephew who's who's five, who lives in Florida, ringing to wish his um, cousin a happy birthday. And I'm like, I'm not prepared for a conversation. I'm prepared to put the phone down on this person or I'm prepared not to say anything at all. And so it really took me by surprise. Now I wonder sometimes in our churches in Britain, Are we taken by surprise these days when a church really starts to grow? Are we taken by surprise if somebody finds saving faith in Jesus? Have we lost our sense of expectation? Have we actually become so removed from what an Acts 2 church is like, dependent on the power of the Spirit, that we just expect things to sort of truck along and if church growth happens, well, it's normally through transfer, not through conversion. Look how many people became Christians on this day. 3,000 people. That's about a quarter of them, is it? In one day, through one sermon. I think we should, you know, we almost just need to pause there. I think, God, if you could do that then, the same spirit is here now, God can do it now. How expectant are we that God will move in that way? What do we expect when we pray, come Holy Spirit? Do we expect church meetings to be slightly easier? Do we expect chaos? Are we just fearful? Or do we expect that when the Spirit moves, actually, people will come to faith in Jesus? That we will be empowered and equipped to serve the kingdom? I don't know about you, but I feel I need my expectancy levels to grow. I feel I need that, that gift of faith to believe 
that God can do great things in our generation. That the church as a whole can once again find that sense of expectation that people will respond to the gospel message. Because the same spirit that was poured out in Acts 2 is available today. That same spirit that caused an outpouring of authentic praise in the early church can do it again in our lives. Are we available? Are we expectant? Do we desire to see more and more people come to faith in Jesus? Can I ask you to pray? And I'm just going to pray very simply that the Holy Spirit will come and equip us for what he has in store for us. So let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for that account in Acts. We thank you for the way that when your spirit fell on that day of Pentecost, that it propelled the church forward in a, in a way that was just incredible. We thank you that because the spirit came then, and all those thousands of people found faith in you, that we are actually sat here today, 2,000 years later. And so, Lord, in line with what it says in Ephesians, we want to pray again for that filling of your spirit that continual filling so that we might serve you, equip, be equipped by you, be empowered by you. So Lord, just in the stillness we pray, come Holy Spirit. Come and do your work among us. Come and transform us. Come and grow us in holiness. Come and equip us as your people to share the message of the cross and the resurrection. 